0: Welcome to Monkey Club with Chris and Chris, a look at Simian cinema throughout the years. I'm Chris Mattiello. And I'm Christian Larson. Today's episode, episode number two, is about 1996's Ed, starring Matt LeBlanc. And uh, we have with us today a man who is only going by a pseudonym, but... Can you blame him? Who would want to admit that they watched Ed for fun? We have, we
1: have V. I am glad to be here. We are glad to have
0: you.
2: Yeah, it's a big step down from King Kong, but I feel like it's a taste of what's to come,
1: because most monkey movies are stupid, and what better way to start start it off than with Ed? Yeah, it really helps that this is the second episode, because the main character's nickname is Deuce, and this movie is a giant piece of crap.
0: On that note, as monkey cinema evolved, so too did this podcast, and we're adding some segments to the show, starting off with uh, what we like to call the 12 Monkeys. We would like to challenge you to summarize this film in 12 words or less.
1: Um, Uncanny Valley, chip Movie, Aggressively Terrible, Bad Baseball.
2: You did it. Wow, that was like poetry.
1: I just watched the whole time I'm watching the movie, I'm thinking, oh my god, this ape, it was raised in the jungles of the Uncanny Valley.
2: It's actually a chimpanzee, but it is a combination. Of a human in a monkey suit and a mechanical head, from what I've read. I know that Chris has some elaboration on this.
0: I, uh, and maybe we can put this, a link to this in the show notes, but I found a, a pretty amazing article, um, from the Austin Chronicle that interviews a guy named Norman Tempia, who does chimp design basically for films. Uh, and this is the movie they're specifically interviewing him about. Now, this was, this came from 2005. Uh, I don't know why the Austin Chronicle was doing like a 10 year mini retrospective on. <laughs> on the effects work in Ed, but here we are. He mentions that it was a million dollar suit. They made two of them. Uh, Rick Baker gave the seal of approval, which is is saying something. Uh, Rick Baker, of course, did a lot of the oh. costume design for, I believe, American Werewolf in London, which that transformation scene is a benchmark of puppetry and, and what you can do with oh. practical effects. He talks about the use of chimps in film, and he says, people are used to seeing little chimps because the way it works with live chimps, they're performing until they are seven years old and then become teenagers and are hard to work with. Uh, So at the age of seven, which is still a small juvenile chimp, they're put away until they are 14 they become geriatric chimps and become passive again. So people aren't used to seeing big chimps in films, which is interesting. And he says that he wishes that they could have CGI'd this puppet to look a little smaller, and then it would be less, I guess, maybe not so much Uncanny Valley, but less ridiculous looking. Because this monkey does bounce between being a giant and being, I guess, normal chimp size a lot throughout (laughs) this film. And the thing that blew me away the most was that the person in in the suit uh, was a gymnast named Denise Cheshire. Uh, They chose her because her height was perfect, she was Small boned and had really shallow eye orbit. Huh. The interesting thing here is she also was occasionally an actress and was the first victim in Jaws, the one who you see getting uh, pulled around in the water at night, the one who hangs onto the buoy. Yes, that is our. Oh eighth. wow! Huh. Wow,
1: that's impressive.
0: Very interesting. So there you go. There's some background on this uh horrible terrifying
1: chimp costume. Actually, I thought there was two actors, according to IMDb, and one of them is a man named Jay Caputo, who also does ape work in movies. See, yeah, I saw that as
0: well, and I assumed one of them was, like, in the suit, and one of them was doing, like, the Frank Welker, making the zombie noises that came out of the chimp's mouth, but I I guess there's no great way to know.
1: I watched the whole movie, and I watched the movie twice, and I had to watch the movie twice because I thought I dreamt half the movie. (laughs) It was actually somebody completely different who did the voice of the chimp. Oh, okay. He's a professional Foley artist who goes by the name of Gary Hecker. He did all of the voice and the noise for Ed.
2: As soon as Ed was introduced, I just kind of assumed that he was an actual chimp. But after a while, he's doing things that are too specific for them to train a chimp to do
0: i think that's a big thing to talk about is um we need to introduce this movie as it's really trying to be a live action warner brothers movie it's very slapsticky it's got strange decisions in foley effects like um the diegetic or non-diegetic sounds that are occurring throughout the film (laughs) and uh this monkey is basically like a he's human-esque And that's why
2: it's like there's only so much you can get out of an actual monkey. You'll get them to clap their hands or stick their tongue out or smoke a cigarette or drink a beer. Put their hands over their eyes. Yeah, yeah, but you're not going to get the kind of personality that you get out of freaky, scary Ed. And there are definitely people behind it. And the Uncanny Valley situation is
1: in full effect. Absolutely. It, it really doesn't help that the introduction of Ed is like relatively realistic monkey behavior, and then he goes into full on Harpo marks. It's just relentless mugging the entire movie on the part of the chimp.
2: Well, again, this movie was not meant for us. I mean, maybe it was meant for us when we were eight years old. And I can definitely see a kid getting a lot of entertainment out of this. So you have to look at it. From that perspective, like it, it's not meant to be the kind of film that film connoisseurs appreciate on any level. It's meant to entertain children. It is a live-action cartoon, and you get that. Um, I, I believe the first time that I got that feeling, one of these classic moments where Matt LeBlanc, the all-American farm boy pitcher, goes up against the evil batter, Who spits tobacco. In a baseball movie, the bad guys chew and spit tobacco. It's just the thing. And he hocks a chunk of tobacco up into the air and it lands on Matt LeBlanc's shoe all the way in the center of the field. And that was like, all right, they're throwing realism out the window.
0: I believe that it's like accompanied by a sound effect and like a. POV, spitz-eye-view kind of shot as it's occurring, too. Yeah, it lets you know very quickly that this movie is uh, a live-action Warner Brothers cartoon.
1: Yeah, he stands there, he chokes up on the back, and you can hear the leather of his gloves on that bat just creaking, creaking. Yeah, it
2: definitely reminded me of the evil Yankees player from Major League. I don't know if he was played by Ogre from the Revenge of the Nerds films, but very much the same. And there's something about the pitcher versus batter dynamic that lends itself to a lot of tension and that makes it a really good aspect of a movie because everyone's hanging on every second and it happens in a heartbeat and the cartoonishness reminded me of one of my favorite Christmas movies Jingle All the Way which is basically a live action cartoon with Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Bugs Bunny character so this is ridiculous and and there are cartoonish sound effects cartoonish characters it's for kids.
0: It is for kids but It's also worth noting that this is a kid's film that has references to someone having a tiny penis, a pun about jerking off And blatant, like, drunk driving sequence.
1: Oh, God, we'll get to that. This is PG, by the way, of having a relative who doesn't really know how to tone down their behavior around kids. So they just kind of change some of the words. But when you're old enough to understand what it is they're saying, yeah, mom shouldn't have let you hang out with this guy.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Also, uh, a precocious child busting out some mid-90s gay panic.
1: Oh, my God, I have some words to say
0: about that scene.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, we'll, we'll, let's start from the beginning. Matt LeBlanc is a small-town baseball player who's been drafted to play for a uh, minor league team on the outskirts of Los Angeles. He shows up in Los Angeles. He uh, is on a team with a bunch of kind of one-dimensional characters. You have the, the dumb redneck guy. You have the wise old manager, two of them, actually, One of them is Black. Yes. The one is the grandpa from Problem Child. Yeah. Yep. And the other one has played, for lack of a better term, the magical Negro in pretty much every role. He plays the same in this, offering sage advice in his not-quite-Morgan Freeman voice. There are a few really interesting cast members that pop up in this movie. And the first, other than the managers, that we're introduced to is Jim Cavizial.
0: Praise Jesus. Jesus himself. Oh, side note, the actor who played the African-American manager, Bill Cobbs, also in Air Bud. So this guy knows all of the facts about what animals can play what sports. And that (laughs) There ain't nothing in the rule book that says no animal can't play no sport.
2: They're a, a baseball team of
0: underdogs. Including the Hispanic catcher who solely exists to say things
1: like "adios, mios." Yeah, if you recognize him, his name is Valente Rodriguez, and he was on George Lopez as the friend Ernie.
0: Huh. a lot of the people in this movie—the the redheaded, the young, I guess, good-looking uh, baseball player played the brother on Titus, and I believe might have also been Scott Farkas. Yes. Yes. Okay, so there's a lot of that guy in this movie.
2: I don't think of him as handsome. I think he looks like a serial killer. But like. I think he He was
0: was one with his shirt off the most. I think he probably should have swapped (laughs) roles with with Jim Caviezel, but that guy was walking around with a shirt off and a low towel more than anyone else
1: in this movie. Yeah, pretty Uh,
2: much. The owner's son is a comically evil business type, Weasley guy with a uh, hairpiece. They call him the rug, I believe.
0: That was the only time I felt uh, the movie paid off a joke for me because the first time you see him, he comes into the office, and I'm just like, holy shit, this actor's got the worst fucking toupee I've ever seen in my life. But actually, it, in the next scene, you do find out that that is, is the joke, and they're going to run with that throughout the entire movie. So this is the one time, like, a punchline kind of came through for me.
2: I don't know who the actor is. I know I've seen him before, but I kept thinking of Alan Cumming.
0: I kept thinking that Alan
2: Cummings should be playing this guy, but obviously, even in 1996, he was probably too good for this.
1: Can I just say something about the cinematography real fast from the get-go? I am pretty sure they filmed a lot of the characters separately. Oh, yeah. Because the movie is borderline allergic to having two characters in the same scene talking to each other. It happens, but there's this whole scene between the manager and between the wise coach. And first of all, the wise coach takes heavy, heavy pauses between every single one of his sentences. But it keeps cutting back in between the two of them. And you don't hear one of them talking from off screen. It's just, he says something, he says something. He says something, he says something. Cut, 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 cut. That is interesting.
0: I would not be surprised if there was a lot of people that they could only get for a few days. The scene at the end where they have Tommy Lasorda. Dodger's great. Tommy Lasorda is is coming around. I mean, granted, by the mid-90s, he was doing, like, Slim Fast commercials. Uh, And the scene where he is there for, you know, all five seconds with uh, the owner of the team, who is also very much a that guy and it was killing me that I couldn't place him. Yeah, both of them are clearly not on the same set as anybody else in this movie.
2: The weaselly son of the owner, his name is Budrick J. Halston. Such a great, comedically evil, bad guy name. And his plan to make the team make money somehow, or like make more money, is to introduce a monkey mascot, and
1: in comes Ed. But he's not just any monkey. He's Mickey Mantle's monkey.
2: You know, I didn't quite understand that part of the story, but maybe you can
0: clarify that. It's Mickey
1: Mantle's monkey. It's like, I want to be a great pop star. Okay, buy me bubbles.
0: (laughs) I did some research into this, and uh, Mickey Mantle uh, never, never owned a monkey. There's no record of that at all yeah that's just a very weird thing that they threw in there but this movie's baseball knowledge is not fantastic i took umbrage there's a conversation between matt leblanc and jim caviezel and jim caviezel says think about carlton fisk he was a nobody in boston but then went somewhere else and became a hall of famer that is like patently untrue carlton fisk had one of the most famous red sox moments in history uh, when he hit that home run in 75 he was like a gold glove winner that would be like saying, like, uh, Derek Jeter, he was a nobody for the first ten years of his career, but then then he really turned it on. Like, no, you're, you're so unbelievably wrong. They, and they still put that line in the movie. It's incredible. They didn't give a shit about anything in regards to their baseball knowledge.
2: Yeah, I feel like the writers of this movie had the same level of knowledge of baseball as the writers of House of Cards have about government they know just enough to get by and the rest is just craziness
0: i did think for a while that there was maybe someone on the staff who knew something about baseball or read an article and that made them write this movie i mean that's completely not true because you know this just came from a producer who was like i want a monkey movie make him uh play in the baseball that air bud it was huge um but there's a story in the early century like Baseball was weird and scummy and carny, but, I mean, really, what wasn't in, like, 1930 and 1940? There was one minor league manager who hired a a little person and gave him the number of, I believe it was one quarter, and I believe he batted just once. He's, like, the only person with this record. He batted once and got a four-pitch walk uh, because no one could hit his strike zone. This movie cribs that entirely, so... Unless it was an accident, someone did have some knowledge of baseball writing this movie.
1: Absolutely, because I'm looking at the name of the writer right now. He goes by the name of David M. Evans. And would you believe he wrote The Sandlot?
2: Oh. Wow. There's a definite love of the game. There's There are many times during the movie where, just like in any classic baseball movie, there's this romanticizing about, like, the game and the show and, like, you know, it, how it's a fundamentally American thing, you can tell that the, the movie, as unrealistic as it is, is very reverent about its love of baseball. Although, like we were saying, the facts don't always uh, line up. For example, whenever Matt LeBlanc's character Coop,
1: I believe, his last name is Cooper, and they call him Coop. He is a man, man of many names. He goes by Jack, Deuce, Coop, and Cooper. And the movie is incredibly inconsistent about what he's called by.
2: You know, I I feel like, just like in baseball, there's a color commentator and the person who has all the facts in front of them. And I feel like, Mr. V, you are that guy. You're the one who is like, actually, he's
0: batting four eighty seven this year. That makes him our Joe Buck, and no one should have to be our Joe Buck.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. Every time Coop goes up to pitch, he's pitching... Hundred and fifteen mile an hour fastballs every time. My baseball knowledge comes from NES baseball games mostly. <laughs> but to get over a hundred is a big deal and for a minor league baseball player to be pitching hundred and twenty seven mile an hour fastballs every time, it's a little crazy. But again, it's a cartoon.
0: If you want to talk about like the realistic like, what Coop, Deuce Cooper would be in a in the, in the real world. He's someone who's apparently pretty terrible at baseball. Like, he can throw real hard, but the movie takes great pains to show he's kind of trash when playing in an actual game. He's got a really strong fastball, mm-hmm. a curveball that's complete garbage, and no other pitches. So in the real world, he would probably be, like, a, a closing pitcher, maybe, like, a middle relief pitcher uh, or a setup guy, but, like, this movie just has him pitching nine innings with a hundred thirty mile an hour fastball or whatever, which is really hilarious, actually.
2: Uh, a movie like this has to have it has to have a romance angle. So Matt LeBlanc has to, of course, live with Ed, and they live next door to a pretty single mom with a precocious daughter who, of course, gets along swimmingly with Ed. And that's where you see... Who is the actress? Do you guys know anything about? And, and V, I'm kind of looking at you on this one.
1: Her name is Jane Brooke. She goes by the name of Lydia in the movie. Uh, She is mostly a television actress. She has in Brothers and Sisters... She had a role on the Rizzoli and Isles, a show called Private Practice, Boston Legal. As far as I can tell, and this is just me skimming IMDb real quick, this is her only role as a leading lady. Uh, like a leading female romantic interest, which... I think she was horribly miscast for this movie because I am pretty sure Jim Caviezel is the romantic interest for most of this film. <laughs> <laughs> Just the way yeah. Jim Caviezel consoles him and talks to him and is all buddy-buddy chummy in the locker room with him. I know it's a mid-90s movie, but it legitimately felt like Jim Caviezel could have been the love interest.
2: And Jim Caviezel gets cut from the team halfway through the film, which I was surprised at. I know he's he wasn't a big name back then, but the fact that he leaves after really bonding with Matt LeBlanc and having some scenes with him that definitely do have, I don't want to say homoerotic overtones, but they were setting up that friendship, and it was very intense when they would have conversations,
0: and he's just gone halfway through the movie. Yeah,
1: it's weird. I mean, at the very least, they're like brothers in the dugout.
0: And if but... you noticed, um, I believe, V, you brought up the fact that no, nobody was filmed together. Uh, Jim Caviezel has zero scenes on the field. I believe he never shows up on the field. He's never shown playing baseball, so all of his scenes just like, come in, shoot in the locker room, get the fuck out of here.
2: The other members of the team, you know, obviously they're about as one-dimensional as Ed Harris's crew from The Rock. Like, they each have their own sort of thing, but none of them are developed at all. They even introduce a character about halfway through who's the bad guy. He's like this slick, kind of Guido-looking guy.
0: It's a really worthless thing that goes nowhere. He's like an opposing pitcher and... We never see him pitch. This keeps talking about going to the show a lot, which is real obnoxious.
2: Yeah, Barnett. His name is Barnett. He's set up to be sort of the Shooter McGavin of this movie, but again, it doesn't really go anywhere.
1: Yeah, his whole character arc is, I want to pitch, let me pitch. Crap, I can't pitch. Damn it, I'll just stand around and pick my nose.
2: Not a lot of thought went into the secondary characters in this movie. There's one thing I wanted to bring up that I didn't really get. I only saw it once. I wish I had seen it twice. No, you don't. Uh, there's a a bit towards the beginning of the film where the managers are in the office and I think they're with Badrick J. Halston and they flip a coin and the coin rests on its edge
1: oh my god let me tell you viewers at home about the most hackneyed frickin metaphor I've ever seen put to film (laughs) please do okay Uh, it's just the two managers and they're flipping coins and it's like the tradition oh who do you think is going to make it to the show? Who's going to get cut? Who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? And they flip the coin for the other pitcher. Oh, it's heads. Oh, okay. He's going to be good. But they flip the coin for Matt LeBlanc. And, of course, it does this whole song and dance CGI number. It rolls on the table, it rolls on the lamp, and it lands on its side, and they're just like, hmm, this must be a sign. And they put a cup over it, and they're like, we'll see what happens, we'll see what side comes up for him. Throughout the whole movie, it just occasionally cuts back to like something rattling the desk, but the whole time, the coin's on its side.
2: I guess I missed that, but that's obviously a very big part of it. So, Ed and Matt LeBlanc, the deuce, Coop, what a deuce coop, little deuce coop. Wow. <laughs> so they have a montage of them getting used to each other, living together. And at first, obviously, they don't get along. The monkey's out of control. He stays up all night watching King Kong, which was an interesting throwback to our last episode. And he's he gets visibly upset when King Kong is killed at the end. Yep. He wakes up Matt LeBlanc, and Matt LeBlanc comes out And the TV station is going off the air for the night, which is a definite relic of the past. I don't even know if that was a thing in 1996, but they play the National Anthem and the two of them stand there and watch the National Anthem. And Ed squeaks along to the National Anthem and it's like a
0: big bonding moment for them. Oh, God. Yeah. You know... Movies that are terrible, and I've said this on Cage Club before, like so many movies that are dog shit, love to reference movies that are way out of the ballpark. And man, don't remind me of King Kong. Like, I, like I just, why am I not watching King Kong right now? Why am I watching Ed? <laughs> is all I could think. I mean, even when they show, because they need to be really 90s self-referential and shitty, the episode of Friends on the TV where Rachel's playing with Joey's pet monkey, I was just like, man, why am I not watching the only other thing that like Matt LeBlanc ever mattered in?
2: I thought that was a pretty clever thing, is that they showed one of the Marcel scenes from Friends.
0: One of the few
2: actually clever things because you know, as we've said, this movie's aggressively dumb because it's playing to children. But that was a clever moment I thought. They have a wacky montage where Ed stuffs his mouth with artichokes and Matt LeBlanc
1: is like, Oh, that's adorable. It's horrendous, this whole it, thing.
2: <laughs> it is, is a disservice
1: in. to the word montage. It's yeah. not even a montage, it's a parade of terror and torment. <laughs>
0: Ed eating, when they show close-ups on his face, and there's one where he shoves his face, which is, like, into a TV dinner, and it comes back covered in food. Like, this is the Eraserhead baby moment of monkey films. I had to stop the movie because I was so appalled at the combination of the monkey doing gross things and, like, pooping and eating. And the, the, the design... And the uncanny valley and the tongue that it has that isn't coming from where a tongue should be, it's its horrifying at times.
2: Yeah, a lot of what you're referring to happens later when he's babysitting the precocious young girl. From next door. Holy shit that scene And what I think you were referring to Is that like as soon as Matt LeBlanc and the love interest Leave for their date They raid the fridge for Sugary treats And Ed is eating out of a Gallon container of ice cream Strawberry ice cream and, Yes and he pulls the container off his face and his face is covered in strawberry yeah. ice cream. Ed is horrifying enough as he is, but for his face to be covered in like this bloody goo, just, yeah, it's the eraser head baby. It really
1: is. And then the girl makes him laugh, and he shoots all of the ice cream out of his nose.
2: And also, there is a uh, a scene during that montage, and again, it's generous to call it a montage when it's really just a stream of horrific images. Yep. He farts, and there's a squish sound as if he shat his pants.
1: Show off. Yeah, he sharts himself, and this is in response to, like, one-upping the girl's gross thing, which is she just makes a fart noise with her armpit. Yeah,
2: wow. Shitting yourself is really showing off.
0: There came a part during this montage, and I think it was when he was dressed up like Madonna, that I Uh. started cackling like a madman. And there was funny, (laughs) audience, there's nothing funny about this. It's like the end of a Lovecraft novel. Or a short story when the narrator just loses his mind and completely breaks. Like I feel like that's what happened. Like I failed my sanity check, and I just I lost it. I, this scene broke me.
2: Well, it was the mid '90s. It was Madonna's Vogue period. Was very much a pop culture thing, so that makes sense in a way. But it's also horrifying seeing Ed in a in a series of drag outfits is horrifying like we said before ed is horrifying enough on his own like whenever he does something that makes him more horrifying it's just exponentially worse so baseball wise ed eventually starts playing third base and there's a big scene where the opposing coach comes out and argues with the umpire that He's a monkey and he can't play baseball. Oh my god! I hero really of the film about this scene.
1: That man is the hero of the film, but he's also a racist.
2: <laughs> I think the umpire, who's black, says something like, "Well, anybody can play this game," and the the opposing coach is like, "Well, not those people," or something like that. And he's like, "What do you mean by those people?" But it is the stereotypical, and I, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that somebody even says there's nothing in the rulebook that says a monkey can't play baseball.
1: Oh yeah, every one of these has to have it. We might as well not put an anteater on the field like an armadillo, but I guess a monkey could. (laughs) Well, he's very good at baseball. Probably because he's not an actual monkey.
2: And then the ump gives, like, this big speech to the crowd. It's all about, like, anybody can play this game, whether they're, you know, black or white, regardless of
1: race, creed, religion. As patriotic-ass baseball music swells in the background.
0: The umpire is shot at this low angle that is used over and over and over again uh, throughout the movie. Like, that's this director's favorite shot, is that low angle shot. This director, Bill Couture, has done literally no motion pictures other than this. Everything else he has directed is a documentary.
2: How do you sign up for this? I mean, I don't know how directors get their movies, but I I feel like if you want to direct a movie, you have to see something in development or a script floating around and be like, you know what, I want to do this. And for someone who is not typically a director of narrative films to be like, this speaks to me. I have no idea what was going through that man's mind. Maybe he had a kid and he just wanted to make a movie for his kid.
1: I think the only documentary maker who could make a good film about a monkey that plays baseball would be Werner Herzog, and I would watch the hell out of
2: Werner Herzog's Ed. Absolutely. Werner Herzog's Ed. I feel like that should be a parody Twitter account.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Ed, in his first play, gets an unassisted triple play, because of course he does. There's no rules that say a monkey can't play baseball, or a dog can't play basketball, or a Canadian can't run for president, because nothing matters. This movie is existential dread, just forever.
1: Yep. I mean, there are rules of physics saying that a monkey can't backflip from dead (laughs) stop to catch a ball, but, you know.
0: Yeah, every
2: time you catch a ball, you have to do it mid-backflip. Like, come on, you don't have to
0: do that. He throws a literal fireball through a man's glove at one point. The glove
1: of my favorite baseball player who is the favorite of the one-note players. The dude who was just high off his ass.
0: (laughs) Oh, that guy has huffed some spray paint.
2: Absolutely. Another very Warner Brothers cartoony moment. Like, he throws the ball
0: and the glove bursts into flames. That guy's career consists of low-budget films that can't afford French Stewart.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he's actually married to, uh, hold on.
0: Is this going to be like one of uh, those Christina Hendricks is married to the schnozberries guys thing?
1: Sort <laughs> of. Wait, really? Yeah. Huh. The actor for Zonk is named Kurt Kaplan, and he's married to the actress Lauren Tom. Uh, She was in the Joy Luck Club. Okay. Okay. And she was also Ross's girlfriend on Friends. Oh, Oh, wow. The degrees of separation get smaller. It gets even smaller when you realize that uh, Chandler was originally up for the role instead of Joey.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we should have uh, a name from Monkey Connections. Like, (laughs) Cage Club has Cage Nexions. Monkey Nexions doesn't have the same ring to it. We'll we'll uh, work
0: on it. We'll work on it.
2: But definitely a lot of interesting connections missing um
0: missing links is really good shit why you know what you're just gonna be the new co-host i'm out you're so uh, much better uh, speaking of missed connections on craigslist yeah the daughter is the one who sets them up on this date and uh the daughter does it by asking just straight up being like hey joey from friends are you gay
2: yeah oh my god
0: that blew me away i have
1: problems with this scene What's i have the- many problems with this scene i could not believe i watched this scene
0: I gotta say, I hate movies, and this happens in a lot of movies, where young children are trying to get their parents laid. It's always gross.
1: Yeah, it only really works in the parent trap, and it's weird when you write a child like this, because my mom watches Hallmark original movies, and I love her to death, but sometimes it's like, the child is like, oh, mom, how is it dating this hunky carpenter? And it's like, no, kid, you'd never ask this.
2: Yeah, I don't want to know. I don't want to know anything about my parents' love or sex life, and like... She always gets excited when she sees them kissing, and it's like, no, as a kid you would find that gross. She says he has a nice butt. To her mom. Yeah.
1: Gross. I feel like there's an ulterior motive with the girl, which is basically like, oh, he's a baseball player, we can get tons of money. And now he (laughs) has a monkey friend, which is awesome, because I'm a child and I like monkeys. But in reality, I think it's just that sometimes Hollywood writers don't know how to write children. I like yeah, that this kid's that's... a
0: little Machiavelli even more, though. Like, that's way better, that this kid's just manipulating everything from behind the scenes.
1: So Matt LeBlanc and
2: the the waitress single mom are getting together. They have a wonderful scene at a at a county fair. Speaking of Hallmark original movies, I feel like that's where every couple falls in love is at the fair.
1: They have a scene which pretty much sums up the whole movie where they're trying to force their romance by dancing in the lights of a truck outside of a carnival. And that's basically this movie in a nutshell.
2: The one scene that we haven't talked about yet is the scene after cut day. They make a big deal over the fact that like some of you are going to get cut today and the benevolent manager is like, I don't want to cut any of you. If I had my way, you'd all stay. And only one person gets cut and it's Jim Caviezel. And afterwards, they go to a bar, and they all
1: get completely wasted. I am completely unsure if Ed drinks during this part, but go on.
2: Yeah, I don't know if Ed drinks. I think he might have a drink. But this scene is is more about the players, and it establishes what's-his-face, the asshole. Uh, Driscoll Barnett. (laughs) Driscoll was the asshole from King Kong. (laughs) Uh, Yes. But yeah. Barnett is like, well, he, you know, he got cut and his life is going to suck now. Basically, they all drink and Matt LeBlanc staggers out to his truck and Ed is the designated driver. And we are treated, and I put the word treated in quotation marks, to a scene with hilarious rear projection where Ed drives them home. And I feel like Matt LeBlanc at his drunkest could have made it home safer than Ed does. Because he's just speeding all over town, almost killing people. He
1: is ripping parts off of the car as he drives. And shockingly, the entire scene is set to the beginning of Meatloaf's Everything Louder Than Everything Else.
0: Yeah, there's a couple songs that they licensed in this movie that I was surprised they could afford. Like, this movie... This movie got Matt LeBlanc in 1996, not in, like, 2006, because that's when it seems like he should be doing this caliber of movies. But, like, this movie clearly had a budget. The monkey costume cost a million bucks.
2: I feel like this was the height of Friends, and it was the time when cast members of Friends were dipping their toe into the world of film. And this was Matt LeBlanc's chance. It didn't work out because the movie was a commercial failure. It was panned by critics. Our next film is a baseball comedy called Ed
1: and it's just plain awful. I don't know how you can so thoroughly screw up a kid's film about baseball and a monkey. Rather than make them a winning team, the movie Ed goes for the loser formula and also provides truly stupid situations with the ape and the hunk as roommates. Now, who's gonna laugh at this situation? kids or adults?
0: Bad monkey, bad!
2: bad, bad. Get out of there! And it received four Razzie Awards uh, nominations for Worst Picture, Worst Screenplay, and Worst Screen Couple. Not Matt LeBlanc and the, and the woman, but Matt LeBlanc and Ed. Fun fact, they lost all of those awards to Striptease. Striptease starring Demi Moore won in all of those categories. Well,
0: the true classics never get recognized at awards shows, so...
1: <laughs> yeah, I was it Stripsies uh, directed by Paul Verhoeven? Uh, no, no, no
2: you're, you're thinking of Showgirls. That's it. Yeah. Matt LeBlanc was nominated for Worst New Star, but he lost to former Playmate, can anyone guess?
0: Jenna McCarthy. Pamela Anderson, Barbed Wire.
2: Yeah, oh, yeah.
0: I figured that had to be around now. Jenny McCarthy yeah. was a good guess, though.
2: Yeah, it was. I was just um, trying to think
0: of what garbage movies would have had real big fits in them. There you go. First yeah, when it came to me.
2: Yep. <laughs> so Ed is helping the team win. Things are looking good with Matt LeBlanc and the waitress. Then the Weasley hairpiece guy comes up with a uh, idea to sell Ed to a rival team for some reason. Why is this a thing? Okay. Why is this gonna work out better for him
1: so they're selling ed to another team it's like oh he's not a person he's a monkey which leads to the the love interest completely derailing oh well if my child was kidnapped you know i better not go after oh them. It's like, oh jesus christ lydia no
2: yeah if i can just interject here that scene like
1: for some reason in these monkey
2: movies the monkey ends up endearing themselves to everyone around them. Like, this monkey is just the most amazing, wonderful thing, person they've ever met in their lives. And when the monkey gets kidnapped, and Matt LeBlanc does not immediately decide to go rescue him, Lydia, his love interest, just completely shuts him down and she's like, I can't believe you, you're a coward. You know, if my daughter got kidnapped, I bet you wouldn't go looking for her. It's crazy how invested
0: they are in this monkey. And even though they do spin it as like he gets kidnapped, Ed is still a monkey. He is the property of this (laughs) team and he was sold legally. So Matt LeBlanc has to go and, like, break the law to rescue his monkey friend. I thought he was getting traded to a team, but I guess that's not the case.
1: See, here's what's happening as far as I can tell it, and I have watched this twice, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, they put Ed in the back of a car, they put him in a cage, they lock the van, they drive off, he runs up to Weasel Q Hairpiece's car, and he's like, what did you do to Ed, where's my daughter? Oh, you know, I sold him. Oh, well, damn it. And then he goes and talks to Lydia, and Lydia's like, well, you know, grow a pair and do this or I won't kiss you. And then he immediately goes to a stadium to get Ed back. But the problem is, as far as I can tell, they put Ed in the car to drive Ed off to go back to the same stadium. Even though the stadium has different signs and everything, it's not the Santa Rosa Rockets Stadium. But he also knows the security manager of the stadium, who is just lets him in because he's like, oh yeah, I lost my glove last time I was here. So I have no earthly clue where the hell they took Ed. And this is an hour into the movie and this plot development happens, just full force running down a hallway screaming, monkey kidnap, monkey kidnap, monkey kidnap. And it makes absolutely no sense.
0: It's because this movie's a nightmare. It's like an actual nightmare where you're just, it's like you're running in place and you can't get away from something. Nothing makes sense. Nothing matters. We're all going to die.
1: It runs in a twisted form of dream logic, or as I tried to explain to one of my friends, it is the polar opposite of a million monkeys on a typewriter trying to write Shakespeare. It is one man on a typewriter trying to write a monkey movie. And the whole time in his ear, people are chanting, monkey, 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 monkey.
2: For whatever reason, and, and at this point I guess we've all agreed that we don't understand what the, the logic is behind this.
1: Uh, it's, uh, it is baffling that the first hour of this movie makes the most sense.
2: Like a monkey playing baseball and being good at it makes more sense than this conspiracy uh, in which he's sold to this rival team for whatever reason which apparently works out well for Hairpiece J. Snodworth or whatever the hell his name was. And Matt LeBlanc goes to get him back, and when he finds him, Ed is in a cage dressed like a clown. And if you thought Ed was horrifying before, oh, God. now he's dressed as a clown. And the only thing that could have made this image more horrifying was if his face was covered in strawberry ice cream. Absolutely. We all float
0: down here, Joey.
2: He's being guarded by these two cartoonish thugs wearing, like, leather jackets and heavy metal T-shirts. One of them might have even had a mohawk. They're thugs they're punks and they're
0: shocking the monkey with a cattle prod thing it's a taser that creates the the same lightning that emperor palpatine shoots
2: yes yes i was thinking that
1: too and
2: yeah matt leblanc comes in and there's a wacky fight
1: scene it's the most action that ever happens in one place for this whole movie the movie also
0: really takes itself super seriously for about 10 minutes. This monkey baseball movie, especially when the waitress is, uh, is yelling at him to grow a pear, it takes itself way too seriously for a movie where we just saw a monkey batting.
2: Yeah, but again, I said at the beginning, this isn't meant for us, it's meant for kids. And, like, that makes you emotionally invested, even if you're 8 years old. Like, it gives us the stakes, He's got to rescue the monkey or he won't get the girl. It's very simple, but for like an eight-year-old watching this movie who is absolutely delighted by a monkey shitting themselves or a monkey going on a a crazy uh, joyride in a pickup truck, it speaks to them.
0: Well, And yeah, he also has to balance pitching in the big game, which uh, he does. The big game, really, there's nothing to it. He faces down the batter that blasted him before. He gets his mojo back and throws the curveball. Really, the, the climactic stuff is kind of garbage. But there is an incredible scene where, where Ed has to go to the hospital because he's yeah. stuck in a freezer of frozen bananas.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, when Matt LeBlanc finally rescues Ed, instead of coming back with him, Ed immediately jumps onto a refrigerated truck carrying frozen bananas.
1: Which is why I think that they're at the exact same stadium as they were before. Because they make a whole point of showing that when Ed's popularity takes off, they start selling chocolate-covered bananas. Yeah. So I, that's why I think they're at the same place.
0: But This is actually a prequel to Arrested Development. This is where the blue fortune got started.
2: And Matt LeBlanc chases down the frozen banana truck in a pretty
1: decent car chase scene. It's decent in the sense that there's two cars and they're going fast, yeah.
2: But, like, there's that one scene where he tries to pull alongside the banana truck and there's an 18-wheeler coming straight at him. And his car goes between them, and it's like a trains, planes, and automobiles reference. I mean, I don't know if it was a reference. Or uh in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, when they're like, you said go between them. I said don't go between them. But anyway. Yeah. It's action-packed, and when they find Ed, he is
1: frozen from being in the back of the truck he is suffering from a very acute medical condition for primates called being kind of cold they don't want to say hypothermia but he's only been in that car for like 20 minutes so he's just kind of cold
2: yeah and so he's in the hospital and it's the day of the
0: big game they leave the kid with him again they just let yeah they're just like yep kid you stay here alone with a chimp. Do you know what chimps do to humans when they're alone with them? They rip their face off.
1: <laughs> See, I think at that point, being alone with the kid would have been less a concern over how the f- Ed, like, tagged people in the game.
2: He was very violent when he was a ball player. He did yes, he pants was. a
0: man on second base, that's true. There was, there was pants pulling down.
2: Deuce Coop is there with him in the hospital. He will not leave Ed's side even though it's the day of the big game, but eventually Lydia convinces him to go and pitch in the big game while Ed is in the hospital. The little girl is there and somebody has to refresh my memory because How does the little girl convince him to wake
1: up? She prays. She does. She says, you know, I don't do this much, but come the hell on, God. It's a monkey playing baseball. And she puts his mitt on his chest, and he slowly grabs the mitt as he hears the live commentary on the TV of, oh, well, it looks like Deuce Cooper is having trouble pitching because he's been pitching 100-mile fastballs for eight straight innings.
2: And this is a good point to bring up the man who plays the sportscaster for the Santa Rosa Rockets had a very memorable role in a beloved sitcom from recent days. He was Jerry on Parks and Recreation. Really? Yeah. And that was the one thing about Parks and Recreation that I never could really get behind was the fact that they, like constantly abused and hated this guy who was just the most, by all accounts on the show, the most wonderful guy, like very friendly, very easygoing, had a wonderful family, but they all hated him for no reason.
0: Yeah, it was very atonal with the rest of the show. I felt like that was a leftover from uh, like when it was still trying to be The Office with a woman.
1: Well, look, now you know what he did. (laughs) Yeah, it's
0: true. He was in was in
2: Ed. No wonder they hated him.
0: Oh man, that would have been a good episode, like uh, like when they found out on Scrubs that the, the janitor was in uh, The Fugitive, because the actor actually <laughs> was in The Fugitive, and they just used yeah. the footage. They should have done that.
2: So when Ed wakes up, a doctor walks in, and they assault the doctor.
1: Yeah, because his EKG is going nuts, because he's hyped up with passion for America baseball. First of all, they're not at a vet. They're at a hospital. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: my favorite <laughs> yeah.
2: part. Yeah, yeah.
1: Then the doctor comes in with the syringe of sedative. Well, better calm him down. And Ed does monkey kung fu. And the doctor ends up on the bed with a needle in his leg.
2: And actually, in the movie's only other clever moment, as far as I'm concerned, they're like, how do we get out of here to the doctor? And the doctor is flipping into a uh, medication-induced funk. And he's like, you should take an ambulance. They go
0: really fast and they go
2: woo woo woo,
0: and I was like, "That's funny."
1: <laughs>
2: it
0: also de- I- it also does imply that either Ed or the girl drove that ambulance
1: to the. It's to totally the Ed. It's established yeah. that Ed can drive, and then the only other clever use of editing in this movie, as the doctor goes woo woo woo, it cuts to the ambulance
2: going woo woo woo. Yeah. 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 That was a a rare moment of art in this film. But I was expecting that when Ed got to the stadium, that he would somehow be involved in whatever the big trick play was that won the game. But instead, he's just there to inspire Deuce to win the game, which, uh, spoiler alert, he does.
0: If you think about it, just like compared to its terrible mid 90s baseball contemporaries, like not the Sandlot, we're putting the Sandlot aside, even though apparently it shares a writer, um, yeah. But like Rookie of the Year or Angels in the Outfield are way more baseball movies. This is way more of like a monkey movie. The baseball is very secondary.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The end, especially, and how he gets inspired to win the game are incredibly confusing to me, and it really just kind of bolsters my theory that this was cobbled out of three or four different scripts and they did not know what plot they wanted. It's the kiss from Lydia at the end that's really the kiss for luck. It is just there. It is weird how little
2: the monkey has to do with the climactic moment.
1: This movie can't
2: decide whether it wants to be a... Traditional baseball movie or a monkey movie. And I feel like the writer of it, who wrote The Sandlot, wanted to write a baseball movie. And the studio was probably like, it needs to be a monkey movie. This is 1996.
1: The studio just took an intern, had the intern stand behind him and chant monkey as he wrote.
0: (laughs) (laughs) In fact, there's a whole like a Barton Fink esque background story to this where they're like, There's an executive who's like, we need a monkey movie, and he's like, but I'm an artist, I write baseball movies, and he goes through this whole
1: existential breakdown because of it. John Goodman still plays his part. Of course.
2: (laughs) So yeah, um, Coop wins the day, he gets the girl, we can't go any further without talking about Tommy Lasorda, who was kind of, every now and then you get a baseball celebrity who breaks through into the main street. Joe Torre had sort of a national presence in the early 2000s. There are certain baseball players or managers who make it into the national consciousness, and Tommy Lasordo was definitely that for the mid-'90s. He was the manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, and he was doing... Like, Weight Watchers commercials? I thought it was SlimFast. That was yeah, my memory. One, the the evil guy, the Bodrick J. Scumbag, or whatever his name was. His dad is the owner of the team, and his dad is played by a guy. The thing I remember him the most as, one of my favorite movies of all time, is Gross Point Blank. And he's the father of John Cusack's ex-girlfriend. Mitchell right? Ryan.
1: Yes.
0: Bad Guy and The Weapon... Wait, he was actually the bad guy in Lethal Weapon? I just remembered him being a bad guy from, like, a like I, I assumed it was seen as, like, a John claude Van Damme action movie. Just, like, he's just an action movie bad guy, but it was actually Lethal Weapon 1 he was the bad guy in.
2: He's very good at playing the rich old white guy. And him and Tommy Lasorda are sitting in the audience, and Tommy Lasorda says, It ain't over till it's over, when it looks like Deuce might lose the game, or, or like, you know, he's down a pitch, or whatever. And that's...
1: Yogi Berra. Yeah,
2: that's a Yogi Berra quote. Yep.
1: Aha, uh-huh, it is a baseball reference.
2: I I would have much preferred that Yogi Berra was the cameo in this, but it was the 90s.
1: And so they
2: win the big game, Deuce is signed to the Dodgers and it ends with them driving to LA and The trailer that they're pulling has a
1: swing set
2: on it, and
1: Ed is swinging in the swing set. And the swing set shows up earlier when Ed is watching Deuce pitch, and I was completely unaware that they own the swing set.
2: I'm pretty sure that swing set was just property of the condo complex that you lived in. Like, you can't just tear it out of the ground and bring it with you to
0: L.A. Well, add it to the list of charges that dude is getting arrested for tomorrow.
1: Eh, it could be worse. He hasn't done steroids yet. So that was Ed. So, Chris, you have...
2: Uh, another segment. Ah, uh, yeah,
1: like? yes. Uh, this segment uh, that we're we're trying out for the first
0: time because I think this is a movie that it, uh, we, we kind of we're hinting at the idea. It's currently called Monkey Business V. Pretend that we are cigar chomping fat cat producers. Pitch us the sequel to Ed.
1: Okay, so they're in Los Angeles. There's tensions going on in Los Angeles. It's the '90s. Stuff's going down. Things are getting serious. There is a whole debate between you know. Uh, How are people going to live in L.A.? It's getting hot in L.A., but they decide that they're going to put Ed on the Major League team as the Dodgers. And he's going to be there, and he's going to play third base, too. But Ed gets involved in some activist shenanigans. He gets involved because somebody gives him a banana or something, and it's like, oh, <laughs> look at all these look at all these wacky people. Ed is now trying to run for the Green Party. Ha-ha, <laughs> politics, satire, all that. We're taking the piss out of L.A.
2: So you're saying that the sequel to Ed would be a political satire?
1: Absolutely.
2: Wow. I'd pay to watch that. I'd pay a lot more than the $3 I paid to rent Ed
1: on YouTube. I did not pay. I completely <laughs> admit to finding a place I could watch it for free.
0: Yeah, when oh. I did too. When you said you rented it, I felt so bad.
1: Yeah, this was uh, too well. expensive for free.
0: <laughs> Christian, what's your
2: sequel for Ed 2? They go to the Dodgers. It's sort of a, a Major League-esque plot, but... It's got to be that Ed and Deuce, their egos get the better of them. Because as they become bigger stars, they get seduced by the showbiz lifestyle of being a high-profile athlete. Maybe one of them gets into drugs. Uh, I'm thinking Ed. Like, Ed starts doing cocaine, It gets very dark. Ed starts running with the bad boys, and Matt LeBlanc's character as, like, a Oregon farm boy doesn't approve of it, and it causes a rift. But then there's a a montage where he gets Ed help. He goes to rehab the two of them. You know, maybe he's, like, wheeling Ed around the grounds of a mental hospital with a blanket over him. Ed and Kate Moss are, like, doing coke, and someone gets a picture, and Matt LeBlanc is like, oh, God, I did this. Like, I brought him into this world, and eventually he gets him clean, and they win the big game. Nice. Nice.
1: I could see that happening. I I would say yours is a lot more plausible than mine. I just wanted to keep in tone with this being absolutely tone deaf and dichotomous.
2: I feel like my sequel was directed by uh, like the guy who did Go or even like Quentin Tarantino, like somebody who wanted to do something dark and something very 90s. Yeah. Because I feel like in the 90s there was a lot of that sort of like, Frenetic, drug-addled filmmaking, the, and that's what I want to see.
1: Yeah, the new Jack City of monkey-playing sports movies.
0: I think Ed Two is a perfect uh, Troy Duffy vehicle.
1: Troy Ooh. Duffy, what? Boondock Saints. What, oh God!
2: <laughs> I'm a hundred percent behind that.
1: But you know, if Troy Duffy did Ed Two, it would just those posters would be on every college student's walls in the late nineties. <laughs> If only, if only we lived in a world like that.
0: So one more game before we uh, we take off. This one is called Apes Versus Man, where we take a look at the movie for tonight and we keep a running score of who had the best performance:
1: a monkey or a man. Hands down, I gotta say, man, I liked Zonk, the stoner, weirdo, whacked out guy, a lot. I also have to say, man, in general, because there was a. Giant production problem with the film that involved the prosthetics for Ed's face. Now, I'm not sure if you were aware of this, but it puts a lot of the movie in perspective. I'll discuss it later. Let's, uh, let's continue with the game right now. But
2: I would have to say uh, Ape, Ed, even though it was horrifying and even though it was like creepy in the Uncanny Valley way, as far as monkey movies are concerned, he was well articulated. You could tell the emotions he was trying to project. And Matt LeBlanc, if I were to put Ed versus Matt LeBlanc, I would have to say, sadly, that Ed had more range than Matt LeBlanc. Matt LeBlanc was just like a a dumb kid from the sticks, which is something that Matt LeBlanc plays very well. But I was surprised at how much Ed was able to... To, uh... To a moat, exactly, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that he was a creepy person in a suit, and not an actual monkey.
1: Okay, I'll give you that, compared to Matt LeBlanc.
2: Has time proven that Matt LeBlanc was the worst friend? I mean, it, it, as far as career goes, because he's in a Showtime series that's pretty popular the other friends jennifer aniston has been in a few like b-level romantic comedies
1: yeah she Uh, was directly responsible for that being real popular back in the mid-2000s
2: matthew perry did studio 60 and that pretty much ended him ross matt swimmer uh, david swimmer david swimmer is on the new uh the O.J. Simpson American Crime Story. Yeah,
1: I would have thought he
0: would have had the worst career, but
1: man, he's killing it on that show. All I know what he's done is the giraffe in Madagascar.
0: <laughs> anyway, I'm going to break the tie. I'm going to side with my co-host. I think the, uh, the ape design was uh, horrifying in ways that, for me, pushed this movie from just the worst thing I've ever seen to something that I would recommend people like have to see to believe. Like, it's not just, I think, like, we're going to do Air Bud-esque movies. Like, we're going to do Most Vertical, Primate, and, and Garbage like that. I think those are going to be just bad and forgettable. I think this is so bad, it, like, I won't forget it, and I think it needs to be seen to believe. And I think a lot of that has to do with that goddamn terrifying Uncanny <laughs> Valley ape. So I'm going <laughs> to break the tie and give the first point in Ape vs. Man to the ape.
1: I'll, I'll give you that. All right, the apes win. So here's my primary reason why I voted against the ape, and it has to do with the production for the movie. Now, you may have noticed that Ed never shuts the hell up. Yeah, he's
2: chirping and meeping.
1: And there is 100% of reason why he never shuts the hell up. However they designed the facial mechanics for Ed, they were apparently ungodly, loud, and noisy. (laughs) Every scene, somebody is in the movie with Ed. They just shot the scene and everybody's dialogue had to be dubbed in in post.
2: Yeah, because the the mechanical head was too loud.
1: Yep, and that's why he cheeps and he murmurs and he makes noises the whole movie. And they just overlay all of those god-awful noises to cover the mechanical sounds.
0: That makes sense why the stuff with the kid is all like this montage with uh what, yakety yak over it and
1: uh <laughs>
0: God that scene's a nightmare. And really it's just it's just Matt LeBlanc who really has any like spoken scenes with him for the most part. So yeah, that makes sense.
2: Again if we're talking about songs, there's been this really great trend online kind of a meme thing where they take the endings of iconic films and they insert Dire Straits' Walk of Life. If you haven't looked it up, you really should. They take just iconic uh, movie endings and they insert The Walk of Life by Dire Straits. I've been watching a lot of those videos recently, and that's the song that plays during the amusement park montage of Matt LeBlanc and his love interest. Yep, it's a song that like evokes these feelings of summertime baseball, you know, and it's a good music choice. I think the music choices, going back to the meatloaf song while Ed is going on his driving rampage, there's some pretty good music choices.
1: Except for the ending, which is set to a Ramon song. Yeah, that I couldn't weird. place yeah, it, too. but it was a Ramon song. Top. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I, I would have to look at the credits again, and don't make me look at the credits again. Yeah,
0: no, that it was, a, it was a very deep Ramones cut. None of
2: us ever have to look at this again.
0: I don't know, man. I think I want to inflict this on other people.
2: Well, you know what? If I ever have a kid, I bet that they'd really enjoy it. I bet a six-year-old kid sitting down and watching this movie would really enjoy it, and I would not hold it against them.
1: I would have been six when this movie came out. I probably would have been dumb enough to enjoy it. My dad... <laughs> would or my mom they would never let me live down taking them to ed but i would have enjoyed it as a child
2: it's successful on that level and like i said before
1: it's not meant for us
2: does anybody have any final thoughts on ed
1: uh (laughs) i i cannot in good conscience recommend people watch this movie unless it's to watch a bad movie or to show it to your kid or to show it to your kid I would not be in the same room as my child to watch this movie.
2: (laughs) I would hope that if I had a kid, he would be too smart to uh, appreciate this movie.
1: Yeah, me too.
2: Chris, any final thoughts? God, no. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, thank you for joining us for episode two. Thank you to Mr. V for joining us. You can check out our family of podcasts on the Cage Club Podcast Network at www.pageclub.me. I'm Christian Larson. I'm Chris Mattiello.
1: I'm Hostile V, and it has been a pleasure guesting with you for as long as this movie, but much more entertainingly.
0: Loved having you.
2: And uh, we'll see you next time on The Monkey Club.